Well, good afternoon. It's a, it's a pleasure and an honor to be here. And after listening to that list roster of people who've spoken to you before, it's also not a little intimidating. <laughs> I'm glad you let me in the back door to, 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 uh, to speak. Um, I want to talk to you about the um, St. Thomas and his title, The Angelic Doctor. Why, why do we call him that? Why call him the angelic doctor? Well, and I suppose you all know the story about how he got this, uh, this sobriquet. Um, he's a young man, and uh, he grows up in a prosperous family, and uh, his older brothers are taken with various uh, nobility uh, positions open to the nobility, and uh, so there's him who is left, and what you usually do with the son who's not the first or the second or the third born, what you usually do with them is give them to the church. So there was the thought that St. Thomas would be uh, given to the church, but not just anybody or anywhere in the church. It would, be, it would have to be a high-class operation. Uh, and so it was the uh, Benedictines of Monte Cassino that he would be destined for. And if all went well, according to plan, he would... Uh, become a monk of Monte Cassino and in due course become the abbot, okay? Which is a, a nice perk to have. Now, uh, Aquinas displayed a, uh, an unusual activity of mind from an early age. The legends say that he, his first question was, what is God? Uh, most people have other things on their mind at age four or five, but that was, that was his first question. And uh, his parents knew fairly soon that uh, they had an unusual child on their hands, so they sent him away uh, to Monte Cassino first, but then to the University of Naples. And there he uh, disappointed his parents by uh, being attracted to and moved by a ragtag group of upstarts known as Dominicans. Uh, people who were interested in the study of Aristotle and combining that with uh, preaching the gospel. So uh, he joins them, and this is a little bit like um, coming home to your parents and saying you want to be the leader of an orchestra or something. And they didn't think it really. They really didn't think it had too much promise, you know. So they they try to stop him from uh, fulfilling this dream of his of joining the the mendicant order of preachers. So what do they do? Well, they kidnap him, of course. And they, uh, have you all heard this story? You all know this? Okay. They capture him. They take him to the castle. They, inter they, they lock him up, uh, and they try to persuade him not to become a Dominican. Now, how do they do this? Well, they try sweet reason, and then they try, then they try a, another form of sweetness. They, they bring a prostitute in. Okay, uh, to dissuade him from virtue, and not just any kind of prostitute, but a very good-looking one. I'm told. Anyway, uh, she comes. <laughs> anyway, the prostitute comes in, and and she sashes, and she sways, and she comes up, and Saint Thomas, for all his solidity, is is shaken to the core. He's uh, he's moved by this, and so what he does is uh, uh, he exercises a peculiar form of pastoral charity, which uh, in, consisted of taking a, a torch, you know, with flames, and chasing her out of the room, all right? <laughs> then he, uh, in great agony, uh, took the burning torch and burned, made the sign of the cross on the door, 
And then, uh, at the end of the struggle, uh, the story is that an angel came to him, carrying a, a cincture, something like you would wear around an alb. And the story is that the angel wrapped the cincture around St. Thomas, even by then, not in considerable waste, and um, burned it into him so that from that time on, he was never uh, troubled, by, uh, troubled by unchastity. An angel visited him. An angel came with an instrument, and an angel helped him be temperate the rest of his life. Now, if it were me, and I were there, and the angel came with that cincture, I would have said something like, you're not coming anywhere near me with that thing. But, uh, but he admitted to it. He allowed it to happen, and so he was graced with uh, perpetual chastity. Now, um, is that story true? I think, well, it probably is. Uh, there's enough, there are enough uh, independent witnesses to, to give some credence to the story, but still, I don't know that it really justifies the title of angelic doctor. Um, think about what uh, temperance as a virtue ranks behind. You know, if you're thinking about the scholastic hierarchy of virtues, um, what are the highest? Well, there's mind, of course. I mean, there's, there's faith, which is a virtue of the mind. Um, our capacity to know is elevated and supernaturalized by the gift of revelation. Or hope, our, you know, which is our freedom, our love, you know, the things we really want for ourselves and move towards, the things that are difficult, high, noble, daring. Uh, that, that faculty which receives that virtue is the will. Charity, love of God above all things, that's also found in the will. These are very high powers of the human person. Prudence, it's found in the mind. Justice, it's found in the will. Where's the body get into all of this? Finally, we get it into fortitude, where uh, with the irascible appetites, you have the um, capacity to struggle against things that are difficult. Uh, and it's a passion. It's found in the body, and it, and it allows you to be aggressive or resigned and enduring in the face of sensible evil. Finally, 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 we come to temperance, which is in the concupiscible appetite and which allows you to deal reasonably and sensibly with pleasures, sense pleasures. Now, temperance is, of course, is an important virtue, but there's a reason it's the last one. Um, it's really not the summit of the moral life, it's the gateway to the moral life. You know what I mean? Just like they say, uh, uh, there are certain um, habits which are not of themselves of the highest dignity or importance, but which nevertheless uh, are the precondition for other virtues taking root and taking, you know, taking hold of us. And I think uh, temperance has that kind of importance. Thomas is not the angelic doctor because he reached the lowest threshold of the virtue and temperance. Thomas is the angelic doctor because this particular virtue helped free him up so that his mind and his will could go exploring, you see? Uh, it freed him up so that his mind could range over the whole span of the created universe from God, one and three, to the angels, to the creation of the world, uh, to the creation of the human person, to the journey of the human person, to God, to, and to Christ, you know, 
uh, God and man. He was uh, set free to consider all of these things with the fullest potential of his mind and will, the fullest expression of an intellectual life. So consider, he's got metaphysics, uh, the study of being as being, physics, the study of motion, logic, you know, laws of reasoning. In addition to that, he considers ethics uh, with the commentary on the Nicomachean Ethics. He has, if he were, uh, had been designated under today's uh, theological categories, since most of his workday life was spent as a scripture prof. You know, he spent all his time commenting on the scriptures. And then, of course, there are his masterpieces, the Contra Gentiles and the Summa Theologiae. Um, so all of these works come from him um, in, as the fruit of a mind that has been released to its full potential, and that by, ben, by dint of the other, other virtues that were given. I'd like you to think about, uh, some people would think that St. Thomas was called the angelic doctor by virtue of his similarity to the angels in terms of, of the way he knows and loves. And that's, I think, partly correct and partly incorrect. If you consider what we can uh, make out about the knowledge of the angels, um, we have, there are three different traits that we can, we can point to. Uh, the first trait of angelic knowledge would be that it is innate. Uh, the second part would be that it's intuitive. And the third element that would be important to recognize is that it is certain. Angelic knowledge, it's innate. That is to say, it's part of their very being. It's not something they have to acquire, uh, work at dig at. It is something that uh, is as, part, as much part of them as your hair color is to you, you know, your height, your, your disposition, your, um, uh, your temperament. These are things that you can, you know, parents can often detect and talk about from a pretty early age. You were like this from the very beginning, they say, you know. And uh, so they're just as personality traits can be innate in us, uh, in the angels, their knowledge is innate. It, it's par part of their, their very self. It's not their substance, but it is integral to them, and it is natural to them. It's part of their own very being. And this innate knowledge uh, comes to them by way of ideas that are not laboriously acquired, but are infused by God directly. All right. What does this mean? Um, well, the other, this leads us to the other uh, quality of angelic knowledge, which we want to pay some attention to, which is that it's intuitive. Um, there is no reasoning in an angel. You know, we, we have to uh, take our time and uh, make sure all our, um, our uh, premises are in order, and we have to go step by step carefully over our reasoning to make sure we haven't made some mistake uh, but none of that is necessary in the world of the angels. Uh, they, they know what they know, and they know it instantly, and there's no process of deduction, you see. And because there's no process of deduction in an angel, uh, there's no chance for error. 
And that's the third point I want to make, that there, there is no conjecture in the knowledge of an angel. Uh, partly, St. Thomas says this because uh, God is the one that gave the angels their ideas, and he wouldn't give them anything that was false. And so if God gives them an idea, it's because it it's, it's simply truth, okay? So their knowledge, being innate, is also intuitive, and being intuitive, it's also certain. There's no chance of an error. Now, is St. Thomas like that? Well, only by remote analogy. His knowledge, like the knowledge of every human being, is, on the contrary, it's acquired and not innate. He had to go through all the work that we do in, in acquiring knowledge. And... Uh, Although he was profoundly intuitive, especially by the uh, power of his intellect and by the, the power of his... Re uh, he was, uh, in fact, intuitive in many ways. He was also, uh, as you can see if you make your way through the Summa, a uh, profoundly discursive thinker. In fact, you, can, if you're, you could be pardoned for losing patience with the, the many mountains and valleys that he takes you through, the many... Uh, the many byways he goes down. He's, he always goes step by step. So his mind, the way his mind works, it's discursive, see. And then, of course, uh, human knowledge. Well, if it's a matter of first-ordered principles, or the first principles of practical reason, or the first principles of speculative reason, you could certainly know uh, with certitude. But human beings um, exercise practical reason and in practical reason, uh, the conclusions that we come with, uh, the practical decisions that we make are, as we all know, uncertain. We can get it wrong. We can uh, follow a course of action that seems most prudent and reasonable to us, and at the same time, uh, be profoundly mistaken. So if you're going to contrast human knowledge and angelic knowledge, ours is acquired, ours is discursive, and ours is, uh, by comparison to angels, uncertain. But, and this is what I want to su suggest with the incident um, of the angel and, and, and the cord, uh, what happened to Thomas was something more than an acquired uh, sensibility of restraint. All right? Something happened to Thomas's humanity that gave him a penetration of truth uh, that operated not like the angels exactly, but something like the angels, something like them, something of their speed, something of their intuitive quality, above all, something of their freedom from distortions of passion, so that he could see and see clearly without hidden agendas, without the hidden agendas that so often mar our own understanding of things, you see. We all are biased. When we, when we approach something. Should I have another beer or not? Well, that very much depends upon the condition of your appetite. And often when you most want one is the time when you should most say no. You see? Uh, but it's amazing how often our own minds can mislead us because of a disordered appetite. But none of that seemed, or very little of that, seemed to be operative in Thomas. So I think that that's part of the reason he's called uh, the angelic doctor. His, his mode of knowing... Uh, took on an analogical quality uh, of innate knowing, intuitive knowing, and, and a kind of certitude and joy in possessing truth. But that isn't the essential element. More essential than the quality of the mind here, I think, is the quality of the will. 
elevated by grace in St. Thomas. Now the crucial point I want to make here is that appetite follows knowledge. All right. Um, that is something, uh, something, the condition of a, something's appetite depends upon what it knows. So the more perfect, uh, the more perfectly you know something, the more uh, penetrating is, is the decision of the will by which you embrace or follow upon uh, what you know. See, if appetite follows knowledge, then a perfection of knowledge implies a perfection and a totality of appetite. And we, we take this to the angels and, and put it to, uh, and develop this one step further, and you can see that if you were a sort of being who had such a perfection of mind that you could not err, that you could not go wrong in the mind, and if your appetite followed upon your knowledge perfectly and in, in, a, in an undisturbed way, then you would be in a position where once having seen something and understood something and wanted something, you could not change your mind. Because, you see, you would have no reason to change your mind. There would be no new information that you would get that would allow you to free your mind. See, um, If you cannot change your mind on something because you have all the information you're ever going to have on it, if there's no new factor that would allow your mind to change, there would be no new factor that would enter in that would allow your heart to change. You see? If your mind has certain knowledge, your will has a certain embrace. And you can't let go. You can't change your heart. Now, let's go with uh, the angels for a moment. Um, angelic knowledge. Um, we would say that it's perfect. I mean, it's not infinite. Only God is infinite. But when you have an angel, you have, an angel, you have a being that is not bodily, not subject to passions, not subject to fear, not subject to hunger or thirst or being tired or being bored. You have uh, a being then that is also not threat threatenable, it's immortal, can't die, can't tire. What happens to a being with a mind like that? Well, um, that means that as its knowledge is, not, is freed from the limitations of human knowing, so an angelic choice, once it's made, uh, would be irreversible. So the good angels, then, ele angels elevated by grace and who made a final choice of God, are then admitted to the presence of God, and they see God, and they love God, and they sing to God, and the thing is, they can't stop singing to God. Uh, see, they, they don't tire, they don't quit. Uh, they see, they love, they see, they love, they see, they love. It goes on and on and on and on and on. You know, they cry out, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God of hosts. They don't look at their watches and then say, well, it's time for a break. 
There, there are no breaks in the angelic world. That's the terrible thing about them, you see. There's an intensity about them that brooks no, no dilution through time. There's no dilution through time or space or any of that. They just are what they are. They sing what they are. They choose what they choose. They love what they love. And that means the good angels, they are on fire with the love of God that can never be put out. And, they are on, and the bad angels, of course, are on fire with the hatred of God that cannot be extinguished. And they are filled with the hatred of human beings as the image of God, with a hatred that can never be assuaged or mitigated or softened by pity or by experience or by time. No, there's an all-out love in the angels following their, their perfect knowledge, and there's an all-out hate in the wicked angels uh, based on their own perfect knowledge. Now, uh, this, uh, I think, is what I would want to point to in St. Thomas as, one, uh, as another dimension of his title of the angelic doctor. Because, you see, um, St. Thomas, when he talk, this, Thomas asks the question, can charity increase? Can charity increase? And he says it can. How can it increase? Well, he says charity can increase not by addition. So, for example, in this, I don't have more charity because now I, know, I now have uh, uh, 70 or 80 people that I didn't know um, this morning. Now I see you and I, I get some sense of who you are. Now I know more people, hence my charity extends to more people, hence my charity has grown. No, that isn't how it works. Um, because if you love God, then you already love everybody that God wants to love, and that means you already love everybody. So that isn't it. Well, then how does charity grow? He says charity grows by intensity. Now, intensity, of course, doesn't mean uh, uh, psychologically intensely, as though you were the, the person who loves you most is the person who stares at you with the widest eyes, you know. <laughs> Or who follows you, you know? Uh, that, that, you know, you probably want to get a restraining order on somebody like that. But uh, it's not—it's not a matter of psychological intensity or getting excited. It's really a matter of reduction of potency to act. Now that sounds a lot less romantic, but uh, <laughs> which it is. Um, but reduction of potency to act. What do I mean? I mean that that what you are, your whole being is able to be released by an action of God into the act by which you will the good to the other. Uh, talk about St. Therese of Lisieux for a moment. Um, it's not her feast day, but she still mer uh, merits special mention. Uh, she is famous for loving God um, in an un undramatic ways. Uh, in the cloister, she didn't you know, look at the sisters with intensity all day long. Uh, she did simple things like you know, pick up pens, you know, take the trash out, do things like that. Very simple, the, the, what they called the little way. But the, that little way apparently carried a grace that was sufficient to uh, make fruitful apostolates all around the world. You know? How did this happen? It's because the mystery of her person was released into the smallest of her deeds, you see. So what she did meant more. It meant more because there was more of her in it. See, Her potency, what she was, what she was meant to be in the eyes of God, was released into her acts of love so that they would uh, bear the very power of her own 
participation in Imago Dei. See? That's how charity increases. And of course, we can't do that for ourselves. That's not a matter of straining, sweating, trying. It's a, it's a matter of asking God to release the mystery of our own being in him into what we do for him. See? More of you in it. That means that all of your potency or more of your potency is released into love. Now that's an angel. See? That's what an angel is. An angel is someone whose potency and power, immense, immense, immense powers of minds and will are released into the act of loving God and released into the act, therefore, of loving God's neighbor, God, uh, the other creatures that God has created in ways that God wills. Now, St. Thomas had this. Um, something got hold of his mind and grace, and something got hold of his will, theological virtues, faith, and charity, and God was able to do something uh, through him uh, that released the enormous power of his mind and will into um, a, 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 a holding on to God throughout the course of his life that was unsolvable, unbreakable, you see? Uh, they could, his family couldn't tear the habit off his back uh, because he knew this was the way he was to be dedicated to God. And illusion, error, sophistry, um, uh, untruth, uh, you know, uh, there are many occasions for these, for, for errors, but he, his own will, his own love uh, would, would insist, you see, would insist on serving truth and only truth. See? That's an enormous potential released into an act of love that was humble enough to consider all these minute questions of theology and spend his whole life, his whole heart, his whole soul in creating and approximating as much as you can in a human mode access to divine truth, the truth that saves. There wasn't much left of him when he died, you see. There wasn't much left of him when he died. Uh, he had burned out his whole mind. He died at 49. He died uh, very young. Uh, he died, uh, uh, Father Torell suggests, from overwork. I mean, he, at least it, was an, it, it, it weakened him. And then, of course, he, being a spacey professor as he was, they say he ran into, uh, on his way to a council, ran into a tree branch, uh, a tree accident, and then he had a hemorrhage and died. But, but the point is that he died uh, exhausted. He died because he allowed his whole mind and will and love to be actualized by God in the service of, of truth. That's enough to make him a saint, you see. Now, um, I want to talk about, for a moment, as I said, I wanted to talk about angelic knowledge, and then I want to talk about angelic sin, and then having talked about angelic knowledge and angelic sin, I want to uh, talk a bit about um, uh, St. Thomas as the angelic doctor uh, with respect to uh, the angel's choice. And I think this is where uh, things will come to a head. Uh, let's go back to the Summa. Um, uh, there's a, a, an exciting saying that I want to share with you. Uh, it, it's very hummable. Um, it goes like this. The procession of divine persons 
are the ratio at causa for the precession of creatures. Not exciting? Let me, let me repeat that again. Procession of divine persons are the ratio at causa for the procession of creatures. Um, okay. Procession of divine persons, what does that mean? Procession of mind, okay? And procession of will. God, being God, knows himself as God. And he utters himself as God. This means that the divine mind, if we want, could be referred to as word of God, you know? And uh, as the word of God is God's self-expression and self-understanding, uh, this is the ground uh, for anything at all that's real. In God, uh, we would say that God is radical simplicity, but there are, in a, according to a way of speaking, divine ideas in God. And the divine ideas are simply finite ways in which uh, things that are less than God can nevertheless share in the intelligibility of God. Things are... Um, intelligible to the degree that they're real, and they're real to the degree that they're intelligible. And each one of us is, in fact, uh, can be understood as a, a finite participated, finite participation in God's own intelligibility. The reason things can be understood is because God understands himself. All our acts of understanding are somehow a share in that divine reality in which God eternally understands himself. So uh, this, of course, means that natures are intelligible because they are, in fact, grounded in the procession of the word of God. Then there's will uh, proceeding in God, which is God's own love of God. Now, uh, this love of God that God has simply is God's. Just as the word of God spoken by God is God, so the love of God breathed forth by God is God, Holy Spirit, love of God for God. Now, that in God is entirely necessary, but with respect to everybody else, it's entirely unnecessary. You are unnecessary, completely unnecessary. Um, However deeply we understand ourselves, however deeply we know ourselves, um, however completely we crack our genetic code and um, understand our history and our makeup and, and all the rest of the things that make us us, however deeply we know these things, we will never from that knowledge arrive at the point where we can say that we had to be. See? Uh, essence and existence are really distinct. What we are and that we are are not the same thing for St. Thomas. And that means that however intelligible something is, however much sense a creature would make, however reasonable it would be to make such a creature, uh, the source of that creature's existence is not in the very reasonableness of the creature. It is in the the divine love that makes it be, the divine will act that says, yes, you made the cut, you see. 
And we're all, we're all pe people who made the cut. I mean, God thought of us, and he thought of different versions of us. There are taller versions of you, shorter versions of you, wider versions of you, smarter versions of you, uh, uh, not so bright versions of you. But uh, for whatever the reason, uh, this is the particular creature that God has chosen to be. See, that's an act of love, and God communicating your very own being to you. Uh, so that the, lo the love of God then, uh, that something has the effect that something is. God communicates being, but this is not dictated by the mind, hence it must be dictated by the will. The only reason that you are is that God wills you to be. So all creatures without exception are intelligible makes sense because of the word, the procession of the word, and we are real. We actually exist by virtue of the procession of love, where God communicates uh, actual existence to us. Now this is going to be true of every creature ever. Um, now St. Thomas distinguishes between vestige and image. A vestige is a created effect without the communication of the proper personal form. That is to say, uh, Thomas uses the example of smoke and fire. Uh, f uh, smoke is a vestige of fire because uh, smoke is a sign of the presence of fire, but it doesn't contain fire's own proper form. Well, the created world in its height and depth and splendor and beauty and power and ener unimaginable energy is a vestige of God, but not for all that an image of God. To be an image, uh, you have to have a share a formal property with God, which means that you have to possess, like God, a mind and a will. Now, God need not create at all, but if he does, it must be to communicate and not receive goodness. Um, God, remember, is infinite perfection, essay subsistence, and since goodness is correlative to being, uh, if God is infinitely actual, then God is infinitely good. Being infinitely good, he needs nothing. He stands in need of nothing. Standing in need of nothing, uh, we can't understand his creation as an act of fulfilling a need, or acquiring goodness, we can only understand it as the communication of goodness. So, God need not create, but if he does create, it has to be communicate, to communicate something. And the thing that he communicates must be somewhat like himself. See? If you ask yourself the question, if God could uh, create anything that is unlike him in any respect, the answer would have to be no. Uh, from the very fact at least that something is, it resembles God and at least that, that it, that it actually exists. So, uh, angels then um, are created and having minds and wills but no bodies, they are created imago Dei with all the perfection that belongs to immaterial uh, being and all their modes of knowing. Now, Human beings are also made imago Dei. First of all, by representation. And by here, when we say we're imago Dei uh, in the image of representation, according to Thomas, what this means is that there is uh, an analogy of proportion. 
A is to B is C is to D. So God's knowledge um, and God's love, and God knows and loves himself as a human being knows and loves himself. As God knows and loves himself, so human beings know and love themselves. The image of representation has to do with the human being's knowledge and love of self. But then there is the image of conformity. And in the image of conformity, we have uh, the object of knowledge not being the human self, but God. So in the image of conformity, the human person has knowledge and love, and it has its proper object. But in the image of conformity, what one knows and what one loves is, by the grace of God, nothing less than God himself. And so uh, we are, just as God knows and loves God in the procession of persons of the Trinity, so human beings know and love God in the elevation of their minds by faith in this life and the elevation of their wills by charity. That's the image of conformity, and it goes through different stages, you see. It goes through different stages. You have the stage of a simple creation where in the state of nature, human beings naturally know and love themselves. And by the way, that's important. Um, I don't know if you... Uh, I'm sure you don't watch Oprah. I'm sure no one here has ever watched Oprah. But if you ever uh, were to watch Oprah in the, in the old bad old days, you could get, you'd be sure to get somebody on who had been through some awful experience. You know, I was, I was abused by this person and that person and the other person, and then I weighed 600 pounds, and then I lost 400 pounds, and then I went to college, and then I, you know, and then I was abused by this person or that person. And, but I'm all right now. See, that's how these things always end up. I'm all right now. I now know what caused everything to go wrong. You see, and now I know. Uh, now I know and love myself. See. Well, that's actually not bad. Some of these, I mean, you can exaggerate it and make it comic, but the thing is, uh, these people, something really good has happened to these people. Uh, knowing and loving yourself is not to be taken for granted, and if you don't know and love yourself, you're going to do awful damage, not only to yourself, but everybody else that you happen to run into. See, So this is not a bad thing. Uh, in fact, it can be so powerful that people can be tempted to mistake it for grace, you know? That, that you, you, you know, you, uh, human liberation then can be confused with a grace, with a theological grace. And it's, that's a big mistake because it's not. You know. Something can be good and not supernatural. And I think that we tend to make that mistake that wherever you have an authentic instance of human liberation, uh, uh, that there the grace of God is at work. Well, maybe, maybe so, but maybe not. It's, uh, it's mer it merits a caution anyway. Anyway. But go through the stages. You have representation and then conformity. Now, in the grace, uh, image of conformity, this is really by grace. And that means that in this life, uh, the image of conformity is realized in the possession of the theological virtues, faith, hope, and charity. Now, in Gloria, in heaven, of course, the human person still more resembles God uh, because they have achieved their destiny, and in their destiny, 
their destiny is simply to communicate the glory of the Lord. That's what the purpose of all creation is. The only reason God makes anything is to show forth and share and manifest his glory. So the fact that you're created means that God has decided that you are to manifest something of the divine splendor that no other creature before you or after you will. There's something unique about you in your imaging God uh, that no one else will ever image or imitate. And in the state of glory, that is, of course, available for everyone to see. Uh, you are a permanent revelation of the Lord in the state of glory. But all of these different stages of being the Imago Dei uh, pale before Christ, you see, who is the only true image. Christ is uh, actually the only proper image of the Father. Now, um, what I want to say here is that the, the whole, uh, I think Father Terrell has made the argument, and I think he's right, that the old Exodus Reditus schema for understanding the Summa is inadequate. The Exodus Reditus schema was God, everything comes forth from God, and as if in a circular fashion, everything returns to God. See? It's a Neoplatonic inspiration. Uh, everything comes forth from the One and returns to the One. But Torah says, well, that, that element is certainly there, but there are a couple of things wrong with it. First of all, it implies necessity, as though God had to create, which is wrong. But the other thing is that it, it kind of reduces Christ to an afterthought. Where is Christ in the Exodus Reditus? If it, everything comes forth from God and then centers in the human person as the image of God, and then the moral life is simply the return of the rational creature to God, uh, you could do that whole circular movement without encountering Christ. So where is Christ in this? That's why Torell thinks that the Summa, while leaving the broad, broadly circular Neoplatonic inspiration intact, would add to it by saying that really the Summa is best understood as the study of the intensification of the divine image, where uh, you have uh, the creation of the angels, uh, who are pure spirit, and then the creation of matter, which is a vestige and not, not the image, and then you have the creation of the human person who is both matter and spirit, and who is potentially the divine image, but you only have this uh, completion of the human person as the divine image as it is completed and finds its climax in Christ. And that's the tertia pars, the third part of the Summa, where Christ as God and as man and as the perfect image recapitulates and brings all of creation back to the Father. See? Christ, and Thomas would have uh, exposed all of this except he died. He was in the middle of the uh, treatise on penance and, uh, and died and didn't get a chance to finish the Summa, which would have ended with eschatology and the return of Christ in glory, where Christ as high priest presents all of creation to the Father. Now, um, going back to St. Thomas as the angelic doctor, um, I want to go back to the angels for a moment and uh, go back to the topic of the angel's sin. Uh, I, I spend a lot of time talking about the perfection of the angel's knowledge, and that I leaned rather heavily on that because I wanted to underscore the difficulty in understanding how angels can sin. How does an angel get it wrong? 
Uh, no, an angel doesn't have passion, can't get drunk, uh, can't get tired, can't get irritated, you know, can't be, uh, he, there's no such thing as a traffic jam in heaven where, where, you know, angels run into each other, trying each other's patience. There's none of that. They're not like New York cab drivers. Um, so there's no passion that can lead them astray. Nor by habit, because they, in the angel, their first instant of their creation, they had no habits. They don't have a bad disposition because God made them good. Uh, they also, they can't really make a mistake through errors because their knowledge is perfect. See? So when you think about it, how did they get it wrong? It's a bit of a theological conundrum. Um, well, the classic answer is that the angels got it wrong by pride. Uh, they put themselves before God. Okay, that's true. And they made themselves their last end. All right, that's true, but that's also uh, a formal account rather than a material account. I would argue that the, the sin of the angels, if you want to say that the angels love self unto the despising of God, that would be true, but it wouldn't tell you what actually provoked that. See? Uh, consider for a moment uh, how... Um, passion and choice has to follow knowledge. Uh, consider that you cannot will something that you know to be impossible. As an example of this, try to will uh, or intend that you walk on the moon tonight. Try to seriously intend to be in four places at once. You can't do it. See, You can't will the impossible. If you're going to will something, you have to think it could happen. Now, this is the source of the difficulty with the angels because, see, they, um, they were just too bright to make some mistakes that we commonly attribute to them. For example, some people think the devil fell because he wanted to be God. He was jealous of God. He wanted to be God. Nonsense. The devil was far too intelligent to think that he could be God. He knew better. He knew that he was simply a created spirit. He knew that, and so it would have been a psychological impossibility for him to, to try to be God. So that isn't it. Well, how about um, I will be happy uh, by because I will reach God on my own terms, you know, autonomy. Don't tell me how to do it. I'll do it. No, that can't work either because the angels knew they weren't capable of reaching God on their own. They knew they needed grace. Uh, they didn't think that they could be happy simply and contained in themselves. They were too smart for that. They knew they needed God and knew there was no beatitude um, outside of God. All right, well then we're running out of options here. Uh, how could they get it wrong? They had to get it wrong about something that they could, that could have been. They had to get their choice wrong about God with respect to something that, not something impossible, like uh, I'll go to God on my own or I can get to God without grace. Not that. They had to, to get it wrong with something that could have been otherwise. See? They had to make a mistake about something that could have been otherwise. Now, what is the one thing that could have been otherwise? The incarnation. See? That's what could have been otherwise. Uh, St. Thomas, I, I, I was, uh, Torell's account of the structure of the Summa is a powerful argument for the Imago Dei as a controlling theme. 
But the Imago Dei, as a controlling theme, doesn't yield the conclusion that the incarnation had to happen. St. Thomas is famous for saying that the motive of the incarnation was sin. Other theologians have, said, uh, have taught otherwise that, that uh, Bonaventure in the Franciscan tradition and Irenaeus and a whole other tradition says that even if the human race had not sinned, uh, Christ would have come. We don't know. St. Thomas says we don't know and uh, what we have to go by is the scriptures and all the scriptures tell us that he came for our, because of our sins. So that's what he goes with. But notice that that means that the incarnation is not necessary. It's not necessary. So if you have angelic creatures, there's an old tradition that the angels fell. It's a minority tradition. Uh, it's Cyprian and Tertullian and one other person. Uh, I forget who. Anyway, it's a minority position. But this minority position holds that, and St. Thomas doesn't hold this either. He could have, but he didn't. Uh, the minority position is that the angels saw uh, but God revealed to them that he would become incarnate in a human being. And the tradition is that this enraged some of the angels. You see, what this being, this imperfect, slow, plotting, eating, sleeping, burping animal is going to be uh, elevated and their nature is going to be assumed by the person of the word. It's unworthy of God, you see. Unworthy of God to sully himself with this lowly creature, this creature who ranks very the lowest on the, ra on the ranks of intellectual beings. St. Thomas says that intelligences are the, ours are the meanest, you see. This creature, this nothing, this pile of garbage is going to be the site of the personal union of the word of God with humanity, with human nature. No, they say. We won't, we won't tolerate that. See, it could have been otherwise. The angels, uh, the, God could have mediated his grace through, through Lucifer. If he'd wanted to, he could have uh, uh, used... Lucifer as the instrument to, to communicate grace to all the rest of the creation. It could have happened that way. It didn't. For whatever reason, God chose to become incarnate, and that caused the pride of the angels to rebel, you see. And turning away from uh, the positive decree of salvation, they incurred their rejection of God's plan, hence their rejection of God, Hence, their, their, their loss of beatitude. Now, what I want to say is that um, Christ, then, the incarnation represents something of a great, great mystery, which we could call the humility of God, the tremendous love of God that would embrace our, our fallen nature. It's hard to understand why he would do that. Uh, the only the only answer is love and, 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 and other virtue. If you want to use another virtue, you could say there's something humble in God. There's something that is not too proud to become identified with a nature such as ours. See? A Christ obeys, you see, and, and that's translated into his humanity in the, in the very fact of obedience. He obeys the Father's will, even when that means his crucifixion. He accepts death 
accepts the status of a slave. He accepts to be born in a manger and die an ignominious death out of obedience to his father's will. There's something in the son in eternity which is reflected in the son in time. See, That's humility. Uh, the infinite God becomes incarnate in a specific time and place. Is this necessary? No. Was it necessary? No. So the Lucifer says to God, uh, with respect to the incarnation, is this really necessary? And the answer is no. It's not necessary, but it's how I want to do it. And that's what was rejected, you see, by the bad angels. But that is what was accepted in love and humility by the good angels. And you see, that's what St. Thomas uh structuring the whole Summa around Christ as the Imago Dei, the Imago Dei, he embraced in his own person, in humility, God's own plan for the salvation of the human race. And that's what he bent his mind to, to understand not what could have been, but what was by the decree of God. You see that? It's the, Thomas was humble enough to conform his mind to the datum of revelation not trying to rethink what God could or not to have done, but accepting what God has done in humility. Uh, and in doing that, that's why St. Thomas himself was a humble man. He wasn't full of himself. He wasn't full of his own importance. He just let his mind be formed and taught and shaped to the, the very specific contours of Jesus of Nazareth, true God and true man. See. I think that's why he's the angelic doctor. Uh, nobody's ever said this, but I'll just throw it out there. If I were going to say why I think St. Thomas is the angelic doctor, it's because he was big enough to be small. He was humble enough to accept the actual concrete decision of God to save us through the flesh of a man born of a virgin. And uh, this is what shattered the, de the devil's pride. And this, this mystery of divine humility is what causes all of the angels to sing in delightfully self-forgetful ways, and St. Thomas is singing there with them without a thought for himself and with all his mind still aglow at the concrete mystery uh, of the way in which God decided to save us. Thank you. Thank you very much. Absolutely. Assuming there are any. <laughs> yes. What, what would have been the order in which things would have led up to Satan and those who followed him rejecting God's plan in order for God to say, supposing Thomas is right, the incarnation is to save us from sin, wouldn't God have said to the angels, okay, I created you and I'm going to create more beings, intelligent beings, for example, of a lower nature in a material world for them. Would he have said, supposing they fall, Supposing they fall, then in order to bring them back to myself, I'm going to become, I'm going to take human nature to myself. 
and then the angels, some angels would have rejected that? Is, is, that, is that I, I, Well, that's, uh, that's a good question, and I, I have to say I simply don't. I, first of all, I, I think I'm going to take the eternity escape route here and say that um, uh, what is in God doesn't have time, and so he, he doesn't go from present to past to future. So for him, the whole saving plan is affected and made real outside of time. Uh, now, the, uh, something of that must have been communicated to the angels so that they could see that they would have a role uh, in mediating a Christic grace, because the, uh, the St. Thomas does say that the angels are saved by a grace that comes from Christ, or you know, or, or they are—they're uh, not redeemed from sin if they didn't sin, but they are—they are, they are uh, given uh, grace that comes from Christ as its source. So uh, somehow their own finality, their own purpose, is in the assistance and ministry to the incarnation. They were created with that in mind. Now, Karl Rahner has a um, an interesting essay on this with angels. Uh, he, uh, the tradition is that uh, angels are pure spirit and therefore have no relation to matter, uh, exist outside of time and place, for example. Uh, Rahner has a long article in which he suggests that the, that isn't really true, that the angels are created with an orientation to matter. They're not, ma they're not composed of matter, but they are created with an orientation to matter and therefore can't help but be related to the world of human beings. They, they're not just pure spirits, sovereignly independent of matter or humans. Their destiny is tied up in ours. And that's why you have uh, the unending attention of the angels in tradition, uh, both good angels who are uh, inexhaustible in their service of us and help for us, and the bad angels who apparently never get tired of, of uh, sticking it to you know, they, uh, they, uh, uh, they never get bored with trying to, to defeat us. Uh, it's because they're obsessed. They can't let it go. Their, their whole finality, the whole purpose of their existence was to adore God through the, through the ministry of Christ, through the, the talos of Christ, through the purpose of Christ. So I, mean, I, if that's, I don't know if that's true or not, but it makes sense. It would make sense of certain kind of spiritual phenomena where, where, where angels and matter seem connected, you know, um, the hallowing of matter, the sanctification of matter, and sometimes in, in specific places and times you sense spiritual activity that, that is tied, tied to place, you know, holy places, or sometimes evil places. Sometimes you can, you're, you can sense that. Have you ever been in a place that you thought was a holy place or a place that you thought was just bad news? Um, I think that there, I think that, I don't think that's just imagination. I think the ultimate reason is for that is that spirit is has some relationship to matter, some some relationship to place, and I think that I think that's why uh, the angels are created, uh, not just in sovereign independence of Christ, but I think they're created with a view to serving, uh, ministering, the mystery of Christ. They are, as the letter to the Hebrews says, ministering spirits. Yeah. So if we take the perspective of eternity, um, God would have revealed to the angels as well, not only that Christ would take human nature to himself, 
but that he would be born of a virgin, and this virgin um, would be raised above the... Uh, but raised above the angels, angels, too, yeah. So would that have been... Um, some way an additional reason? Uh, well, the, 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 I think that the, the tradition is strong that the, the angels, that Our Lady is queen of angels, that they have special you know, devotion to her, and that the demons, of course, have a special loathing for her above anyone else. Uh, but, but the grace of the Blessed Virgin is the grace of Christ. She is who she is because of Christ, so it's all subordinate to him. But yes, uh, there's a definite instrumentality of the flesh of the Virgin Mary in our salvation, and uh, so that's one of the reasons why there's an unending desire to desecrate flesh. You know, if, you're, if you want, uh, that's one of the marks of the demonic, is a, 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 a never-ending desire to degrade the human body, because it's where the incarnate one was incarnate, you see? That's a way of turning God's plan on its head, you see, or defiling it, or, you know, yes? Father, I wondered what uh, Thomas thought about Augustine's uh, depiction in the introduction to the city of God about the Libido Dominandi as the fundamental vice of the city of man, including the fallen angels. Um, well, I th the lust for power. The lust for power. Well, I think that uh, St. Thomas, uh, see, what, the last bit that I developed in the talk is speculative. St. Thomas never himself says that the reason the angels fell was because of the, uh, they foresaw the incarnation. Other people have said that, but Thomas didn't. I'm, all I'm saying is that it would be, Thomas's explanation is more formal than that, uh, that it was a decision to, um, actually St. Thomas uh, says that they fell because they refused to look beyond their own glory. Uh, the angel is a splendid being, and um, as, a spl as, a, as a splendid being, as Lucifer is the highest of all creation, there isn't anybody who's on a natural level who's equal. There was nobody more beautiful or intelligent, and uh, there was an option to look beyond that to the divine source, uh, but he decided to be content with gazing at himself, admiring his own loveliness, and t thereby taking himself as last end. That's closer to what St. Thomas says the sin of the angel was. Uh, but I think that um, uh, well, th understanding that uh, Christ is really the goal of the summa, not an afterthought, and that all grace is mediated through Christ, the angels have to be considered in reference to Christ. And St. Thomas himself says the grace of the angels, the grace that the angels received was through the ministry of Christ, and so I think the natural conclusion to draw from that is, especially when you realize that you can only err about something which is possible, you know, not something about which is impossible. Uh, it was possible for us to be saved through some other way than the instrumentality of Christ, and I think uh, that is the only opportunity for error that they had. That's why I incline to the, the theory that that's where they got it wrong. But that's not in St. Thomas. That's just your little old helper, me. Yes. Um, Thomas um, went to uh, boarding kindergarten. Um, when he finally, as a teenager, got all excited about what he wanted to do with his life, mom locked him up. His brothers sent him a prostitute to prove to him he wasn't so darn holy. Um, even later, when he's in graduate school, he's in Germany, he can't talk to anybody. He doesn't know, he doesn't know German. Um, 
this is not generally the, the path we, we'd say that promotes mental health. No. Uh, did, did, um, I mean, I guess there's that fact, first of all. That, and then I wonder, did that perhaps help Thomas understand the human, emo human emotions and their relation to the intellect and how they can go right and how they can go wrong, maybe better than some other people might? Well, I think he would, un that's a really uh, a good question. Um, first of all, I think that on a human scale, uh, Thomas is a genius, all right? Uh, his, uh, he's not ordinary. Uh, and I think that it's difficult to postulate a psychological profile of somebody who's so far above you. You know what I mean? What, what, what does it mean to be a genius? I don't know, I'd have to be a genius to know. See? Uh, but I mean, the extraordinary, look at the things that he wrote and the, the, uh, the volume, the sheer volume of what he wrote. And it's not, uh, it's not like he wrote advice columns or something endlessly. Uh, it's all very densely argued stuff, right? So that kind of concentration is something that is foreign to me. I can't even imagine that, okay? So what is, so mental health, I don't know, what's mental health for a genius? I don't know. Um, I don't know. Uh, as far as, what was the other question? It, it was just all for you to reflect on, on, on that problem of his sort of upbringing isn't, Oh, yeah, I, I mean, if a normal person brought up that way would, would have difficulties if you're locked up and, you know, you uh, don't, it's, it, yes, but Thomas is not, and he is normal in the sense that he learns like everybody else does, but he's got such an extraordinary mind and a will or a dedication and an extraordinary grace that goes with it, so that uh, it's very risky to say what must happen. Some conditions that would drive some people crazy are for another person conditions of profound fruitfulness. Lock me up for three days of not talking to anybody, I might go a little squirrely. St. Thomas, lock him up for three days and he'll just be really happy, you know? Um, and, and now, about the question of uh, sympathy, well, I think you understand, I think he understood some things much more profoundly than people who are more moved by their emotions, but on another level, I think he may have understood less. You know, um, more because nobody's, nobody understands sin the way somebody does who's distant from it, you know. Uh, you can see how ugly it is. What was I, you know, uh, you're able to say, uh, you're able to have a distance from it and that means you can really see. Uh, Iago, if you, if, uh, if, you, if you go to Shakespeare and you uh, look at Iago, you say, that worm, how could anybody be such a heartless betrayer, you know. And uh, so people wonder about the motives of Iago. Uh, that's sufficiently removed from us so that we can understand the villainy of it and we can explain it very well, right? Um, we know why it's disordering, we know why it's disfiguring, but what is it like to be Iago? You'd have to be a jealous man or, or, or an envious man or, or something you, to, to experientially know what it was about. Sometimes, uh, knowledge by participation gets in the way of a more adequate uh, knowledge by theory. You know, but I think they, they, they perform different services for you, and I think you need both. Thank you. Yes. Thank you, Father, for a great talk. Uh, question, given the, the clarity of the angelic intellect and its intuitive bent, uh, it would seem fairly clear that they could foresee consequences of the act. 
how, how can we possibly grasp what led them to make that choice? I understand there was the incarnation thing, but if you can see with that type of clarity, does that have to still remain a mystery how some an intellect of that clarity with that type of intuitive power could make that choice? I was just reading an article about that uh, recently, a couple days ago in preparing for this talk. And one guy, I forget the guy's name, but his, his idea on it, his take on it is that uh, uh, the devil made a gamble, and the gamble was that God doesn't have to punish, you see. He can forgive. And uh, so God, being all good and wanting to communicate his life, will not really lower the boom on me, and he'll open up new articles, of, he'll open up grace. I can, but this is tied to the idea that I can, you know, will to be the head of creation, and uh, God will still uh, forgive this, and maybe even allow me to be head of creation. So uh, the punishment was not foreseen. Now I think that's not a very particularly helpful suggestion uh, because uh, the, the punishment for sin is intrinsic, not extrinsic, you know? And a nature like that couldn't fail to know that if God is the source of your happiness and you are separating yourself from that source, you're going to be unhappy. I don't see how you could be wrong about that. And, I, and it isn't a matter of God just deciding to get tough. Uh, it's a matter of uh, if you refuse to be a friend of God, then you're not a friend of God, and therefore you're unhappy. That's its own punishment, right? I mean, you can add little details about fire that curb angelic movement, as St. Thomas says. That's, you know. but, uh, but that's entirely incidental. The great terrible thing is that you are, uh, have tried to make yourself happy, and you can't. And they've had to know that. Well, thank you so very much. Okay. Okay.